Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 27, Honor Among Thieves. That night, after SS Officer Captain Bernhard Kruger was given the responsibility of reviving Operation Andreas, now dubbed Operation Bernhard, the forging of British banknotes by his superior Chief of SS Foreign Intelligence, Walter Schillenberg, the captain was unable to sleep. Repeating itself over and over in his mind was a small part of his answer when he accepted, not that he had any choice, his assignment. Quote, I really do not know whether another attempt will end in failure like the first. It depends as much on the skills of the prisoners as on the abilities of the leaders. Unquote. On the skills of the prisoners. But why should they strive to help Bernard succeed and thus save his life? They were the condemned, and knew this. They had been abused in every way imaginable, knowing it would only end when their lives ended. They had watched loved ones torn away from them, watched their friends be killed, some in front of their own eyes. They had everything that made them human stripped from them by the camp guards. The clothes they wore marked them out as filth, as subhuman. The wooden clogs they were forced to wear did the same. Their heads were shaved, their names taken away, replaced by numbers, from which they were addressed. To be noticed was death. To stand out was death. To answer questions like, who were the skilled ones, who were the intellectuals, who were the Jews, was death. So how was Kruger going to find and motivate former skilled craftsmen, former professionals, to take pride in their work, to work mightily for him, an SS officer, to solve the numerous problems he knew that had to lay in between this point in time and success as defined by creating perfectly forged banknotes. It couldn't be fear or abuse that led to failure. After all, of all the labor camps, the most productive one, a textile factory that made uniforms at Ravensbrook, had only reached a 40% level of civilian productivity. That mark was nowhere near what Kruger needed. And by 1942, the prisoners knew that most of their labor was simply their last hour on the stage, amid the sound and fury of a single rifle shot or the releasing of deadly gas, signifying nothing. The best example of this was that each morning, no matter what camp the prisoners were in, roll was taken and the number of prisoners still in camp, alive or dead, were counted. If the total was not the same as the day before, more lives were taken in consequence. They were there simply to be worked to death. At Monowitz, where Primo Levi labored at the IG Farben synthetic rubber plant, the prisoners, through no fault of their own, did not produce the first tire. The year before Kruger arrived at Sachsenhausen, the commandant there had the slaves build him a yacht. There was no body of water nearby. That same year, 1941, again at Sachsenhausen, 18,000 Russian prisoners were killed outright. But the worst one was at Treblinka, in where 900,000 Jews were executed, the vast majority of them within two hours upon their arrival. No, the prisoners knew the world they lived in. They knew they no longer belonged 
to the real world. But again, if Kruger had any chance of succeeding, he had to treat these men differently. He had to be kind, to be understanding, even protective of them. In short, he had to gain their trust. Despite all that was around them, all they had seen and been through, they had to want to work under Kruger and to take up his cause. He had to become their leader in the best sense of the word. Not getting much sleep and still plagued by his many doubts, Kruger set about his task. First, he drove about 20 miles north of Berlin to Orenburg, where nearby was the Sachsenhausen camp. He visited the structure his men and his machinery would be housed in, in Block 19, a barrack 400 feet by 20. This, he surmised, would never do. His men needed better. The newly promoted major ordered improvements to Block 19. As he was leaving, Kruger also ordered that the windows of his barrack be covered over with black paint. A few days later, Kruger entered the rooms that held the now-defunct Operation Andreas. Under neatly laid canvas were the machines Langer and his staff used, on top a fine layer of dust. To the side was a large steel safe. Hoping to find therein technical specifics about the process Langer used to make his quality forgeries, the Major found, instead, a few bundles of banknotes, wire gauzes used to make watermarks, and five copper plates for printing notes of five, ten, twenty, fifty, and one hundred pounds. All this he put back in its proper place within the safe. But nowhere was there a log explaining how such a promising enterprise had simply collapsed in on itself. He swore not to repeat their mistakes, even if he couldn't figure out what they were. Then he realized there would be few, if any, orders in writing about the beginning or the end of Andreas, just as his current assignment had been issued verbally, and there was a reason for that. It's doubtful that Kruger ever knew why Operation Andreas was revived. He was just following orders. No more, no less. But the idea of renewing the counterfeiting scheme most likely came from his immediate supervisor, Schellenberg. But when Himmler agreed to this, he had his own reasons. Heinrich Himmler, from the moment he took over command of Hitler's bodyguard in 1929, made up of 280 men, had aspirations his slight bespeckled appearance belied. The basis of the SS, now under him, was to be a political army that served Hitler and his ideas, not Germany. Himmler would use his men to make sure that his Fuhrer was not, quote-unquote, stabbed in the back, as had been the leaders of Germany during the Great War. The SS would grow, would be grown by this former chicken farmer, absorbing or destroying all it came into contact with. Only in the future, during the war, lay the panzer divisions and concentration camps staffed by SS personnel, paid for by the SS, and to a large degree existing outside the domain of the Interior Minister and Wehrmacht, respectively. But before that time were the forays into mysticism, a passion of Himmler's, the archaeological digs, the search for Atlantis, the search for proof that the Aryans were once the rulers of the earth 
and now their children, the Nazis, were simply claiming their birthright. All that had to be financed. But also, on a more earthly plane, there was the objective of surviving within the Nazi dog-eat-dog world. The traditional military intelligence of Germany was the Abwehr, the logical enemy to the SS Foreign Intelligence Network, run by Schillenberg, as they both sought to serve the state in the same capacity. And one day the SS would consume the Abwehr, but that was in the future. Before 1942, the interior minister, Wilhelm Frick, was Himmler's worst enemy, who swore to destroy the SS, and seemed well on his way by having funds withheld from Himmler's organization whenever he could. In fact, the SS were so underfunded at first, new members had to buy their own uniforms. And Goering, who dabbled into everything, would not take kindly to anyone encroaching on an area he felt was, or should be, under his jurisdiction. No, Himmler had his plans, just like everyone else, but had suffered long under the weight of more powerful men. But now, he had the possibility of breaking the chains around him. He would have Operation Bernhardt succeed. His men would find the spiritual, or supposed mythical, strength of the Aryans. And putting all this together would make the SS the strongest force in the world, which then could place that world at Hitler's feet. As for Schellenberg, his goals weren't so lofty, but imaginative and certainly more dangerous, because his intention all along was to outwit his fanatical superior, Himmler. By 1942, Schellenberg knew that Goering's Luftwaffe wouldn't be able to dump enough forged currency on London to ruin their economy. If it ever had been possible, that day had surely come and gone. The Luftwaffe couldn't even supply the German armies in Russia after their first winter there, much less something as relatively safe as dropping fake money over a city protected by the blackness of night. Schellenberg's sales pitch to Himmler had indeed been the desire to destroy the British economy. But in reality, he needed that money for his small but growing intelligence branch. He wanted to dominate the Abwehr just as much as his boss. But he was thinking in terms of honor for himself only. He needed more spies, foreign spies, and they wanted to be paid in British currency. He needed weapons, safe houses, listening devices, the ability to bribe when things went bad, as they tend to do in intelligence work. And all that would be possible with British banknotes. The fact that they weren't real, well, only he needed to know that. Because Kruger was loyal, he wouldn't talk. The prisoners couldn't talk to anyone outside their camp. The guards, well, if they slipped up, it would only happen once. But Kruger would do his duty, and a part of that duty was to deliver to Schellenberg personally only the best of what the prisoners produced. Schellenberg liked taking chances and risks, and now he was playing for the highest stakes possible, his life. And Kruger got on with his work. On his insistence, an order went out on July 20th, 1942, to the commanders of Buchenwald, Ravensbrück and Sachsenhausen. The wording was to the point. Quote, 
you must inform me immediately of all Jewish prisoners who are from the graphic arts, specialists in paper or any other skilled worker, e.g. hairdresser. These Jewish prisoners may be of foreign nationality, but they must have a knowledge of German. Send me names and nationality by 3 August 1942. But Kruger wanted to make sure he got the best of what was available to him within these few camps. So two more orders, worded the same way as the first, went out. And Kruger would be pleasantly surprised by what he found. As Block 19 was being renovated and the future prisoners slash workers were being selected, Kruger focused on obtaining his SS guards. Many of the guards for these camps were wounded soldiers, unable, due to a missing arm or damaged hand, to work to the standard of a fighting unit. But even as the most SS members were sadistic, or became sadistic over time, the injuries of the non-SS personnel had immuned them to the plight of the prisoners. And though Kruger was now SS Hauptscharfuhrer, or Major Kruger, he still had to function within the framework of the SS command. His first disappointment came when he asked for a Sergeant Major Kurt Werner, a hard-working, disciplined, but intelligent soldier. Instead, he had to settle for two quartermaster sergeants, who were the exact opposite of Kruger's goal. Herbert Marock and Heinz Weber were used to being yelled at by their superior for their incompetence or inability to focus on a given task. And as much as Kruger tried, all he could get through to the two Dumkoffs was to understand that they were not allowed to kill his prisoners without his permission, which left, of course, a whole range of abuse open to them. Things were looking up for the two sergeants. The next step for Kruger was to gather his master printer. But instead of reinventing the wheel, Kruger decided to use the same man from Operation Andreas, August Pietrich, who had moved on with his life after Andreas fell apart, returning to his own print shop, when he was contacted by the SS Major. As Kruger explained his intention, Pietrich responded by saying that surely the SS officer was joking, quote-unquote, almost like an April Fool's joke. After Pietrich had his laugh and Kruger revealed that he too found this task almost unbelievable, he was here to inform the master printer that the order was real and that he, Pietrich, was now a part of Operation Bernhard. Accepting his fate, Pietrich mirrored Kruger's thoughts and main fear when he said, quote, the prisoners are the principal players, unquote which of course meant that both of their lives depended on the master printer teaching his skills to the group of men that were not there by choice in six months, whereas Pietrich had been apprenticed for three years. The next day, Kruger took Pietrich with him to Sachsenhausen to begin selecting the men that would do the work and hold their fates in their hands. They just wouldn't know it. As Kruger stepped out of his car, he saw 80 prisoners lined up perfectly. Then a guard yelled, Hats off! And as one, the prisoners snatched off their pathetic headgear and held them rigidly against the trouser seam of their blue and white striped uniforms. Kruger, who had never been this close to prisoners, sensed the fear among the men before he saw it in their eyes. 
These men had obviously been exposed to horrors that were designed to break them before they died. In other words, his job of getting those selected to work hard and diligently was cut out for him. Obviously, it was time to use his carrot approach. And the guards may think him a fool behind his back for what he was about to do, but he needed these men. Kruger, walking up and down the lines, with Petrick following him, put on his most charming and disarming smile. With his eyes darting to a list in front of him every few seconds, the SS Major stopped in front of one of the terrified men. How old are you? Sixty years. Your profession? Paper expert. Where do you come from? Eichenberg and Bohemia. Why are you here? I am a Jew. Step forward. Kruger had purposefully spoken loud enough for everyone to hear, and what they heard was the Major using the polite German Z, and not the familiar, or in this case, demeaning Du. He then continued on, stopping in front of men who had listed desirable professions before becoming prisoners, smiling at them, showing a modicum of respect, and having them step forward. And after each time a man separated himself from the line, their steps became more eager. Of course, they had no idea what they were being selected for, but honestly, how much worse could it get? It is said that a drowning man will even grab at the tip of a sword when trying to save himself. Kruger knew he had the men leaning his way when he came to one particular man, a printer. Where did you work? At various Berlin firms. Do you want to join the others? There was no hesitation. Yes, sir, Herr Strumbanfuhrer. Join the others. By the time he was done, Kruger had selected 39 prisoners. He had planned on only selecting 30 that day, but came across a Polish doctor, a self-professed joker, who would keep morale high, and, against all odds, four professional printers. As for the first two, Block 19 would be a world unto itself, and the doctor and the joker along with the eventual carpenters Kruger would select, would serve as his men in all their needs. Not even the commandant of the camp knew the reason behind the major's selections. He was just told to give the SS officer everything he asked for. But then the very men who were supposed to be supporting Kruger splashed cold water on his optimistic mood. His printer, Petrick, doubted very much he would be able to teach the wretches he reviewed that day, to which Kruger replied that Petrick needed to be patient, adopt a positive attitude, and, if that didn't work, just realize this was what they had to work with. So get over it. Then, one of his new SS guards, Marok, tried to explain to the obviously naive major that they had to be more firm with the prisoners who expected this of them. Besides, they were used to it. Kruger didn't have time to go into explaining to his guard that that kind of thinking was the exact opposite of what was needed in this instance. Besides, he doubted he could make the SS brute understand. Kruger would just have to hope the men behaved themselves, and that he would have time to intervene in case things got out of hand. Over the next few weeks, Kruger added to his personal army. 
Using the information recorded on Hollerith classification cards, he was able to find six more printers, several stereotypers, the ones that actually made the metal plates used by the printers, and an accountant. Someone had to keep the records. And even though the men still did not know what they had been selected for, Kruger had already altered the individual history for 19 of the first 31 men he chose, as they had been selected for the gas chamber on the day he selected them. When the second batch of men arrived at Block 19 at Sachsenhausen, just north of Berlin, they had no idea of the changes that had been made around their barrack, but couldn't help but see that the barbed wire around their new home was so thick that, quote, not even a cat could have gotten through that barbed wire netting unscathed, unquote. Of course, only Kruger knew that it was as much to keep everyone else out as to keep his men in. No one must find out what was going on within. When this batch was checked in, Kruger showed up in civilian clothes and spoke softly with his men, but still not letting on what their purpose would be, which left many of the men still too suspicious to hope for anything better than what they had already experienced. For example, two locals from Amsterdam, after having been picked up and sent to Auschwitz for breaking curfew, were of 38 others out of 1,150 who had taken the nightmarish journey with them in a boxcar. So their judgment was still in abeyance. But now that they were all inside the thick barbed wire and within Block 19, it was time for them to be told all. First, Marok strode to the front of the group, carrying a counterfeit five-pound note, and sneered, quote, We have beaten England in the military field. Now, with these notes, we shall also ruin their economy. They have dropped counterfeit bread ration coupons over Germany from the air. We shall reply with these notes until inflation is over them like a storm, unquote. Before the prisoners could calculate this new information in the aspect of what did this mean for their immediate future, Major Kruger stepped forward. He spoke pleasantly and with a relaxed manner. Kruger introduced himself, then Master Printer Petrich, who couldn't completely hide his lack of faith in these prisoners' ability to create perfect forgeries. Then he introduced the two guards, Marok and Weber, who couldn't help but come across as two brutal men who looked forward to tormenting their new charges. But then Kruger took it to another level, the necessary level if any real quality work was going to be obtained from these men. He informed them that their work, their duty, was because of an order coming directly from Heinrich Himmler himself, leader of the SS. But when there was no prideful swelling of emaciated chests from his audience, Kruger realized his carrot wasn't working. So, inwardly, he shrugged his shoulders and told them what they wanted to hear. Quote, Work begins daily at 7 o'clock and ends at 4 o'clock. Lunchtime is from 12 to 1 p.m. There is no work on Sunday. If you have complaints, whatever their nature, tell me. I am also available for personal questions. Unquote. And then, the biggest carrot of all. Quote, As of today, you are freed from participation in camp roll call. 
Do you understand me? Unquote. Then, collectively, as the men in striped, thinly pathetic clothes took in what the SS Major said, combined with the understanding that their duty would take years, at least, they all roared with one voice, Yavol! Yavol! 